2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Felipe Hinojosa, author of Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio, published by UT Press uh, in 2021. And that's University of Texas Press. Uh, Felipe Hinojosa is an associate professor of history at Texas a&M University and author of Latino Mennonites Civil Rights, Faith, and Evangelical Culture, published by John Hopkins University Press in 2014, which won the Americo Paredes Book Award by the Center for Mexican-American Studies and South Texas College in 2015. Felipe's work has appeared in Socalo Public Square, Western Historical Quarterly, American Catholic Studies, and uh, the Mennonite Quarterly Review, and also in several edited collections on Latinx studies. Hello, Felipe, and welcome to New Books and Latino Studies. Thank you,
0: David James. It's great to be on.
2: Great. Well, let's uh, start by having you tell the uh, audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah,
0: so I was um, born in Brownsville, Texas. It's the southernmost tip of uh, Texas, right on the Gulf Coast, a uh, 20-minute drive from South Padre Island. I grew up literally walking distance to La Frontera, to the port of entry there with the border town of Matamoros. Um, and I grew up in a barrio in Brownsville known as La Cuatro Um It, you know, if you if you're coming in from from Mexico uh, and you're crossing uh, uh, into downtown in Brownsville, uh, you're you're met with streets of dead presidents <laughs> named after <laughs> dead presidents. And I was on, you know, I was on Taylor street. I grew up on Taylor street, one block over from James Polk. <laughs> um, and, and uh, that, you know, that's, that was my neighborhood. It was a very eclectic barrio. I mean, it was a place where, um, there were Pentecostal preachers. There was a Catholic church, uh, three blocks down that we could walk to the elementary school named after one of these Tejano giants, um, JT Canales, Mm -hmm. um, was where I went to elementary school. Um, And, you know, next door neighbor on our right side was Conchita, who kept her, you know, lawn green and her plants and shrubs and bushes just bright and joyful. And, you know, on the other side, uh, you know, the family that barbecued almost daily, but certainly (laughs) always on weekends. Um, And we were, you know, the uh, one of the few Protestant families on the block uh, who went to church twice on Sundays and and uh, probably about two or three times during the week. Um, you know, my dad was a minister, was a pastor of a Mennonite church. And if you know anything, you know, folks have read the first book, they might know. But I'll just sort of say it quickly here that um, uh, it, yes, it is odd for a Mexican American family to be part of a Mennonite church, but the story with us is that my parents were migrant farm workers, right? And like other, like many in South Texas, and um, they picked cherries up in Traverse City, Michigan in the late 50s and early 60s, um, way before I was born, um, and worked on Mennonite farms, picking tomatoes in Northwestern Ohio in a small town known as Archibald, Ohio. And dad grew up nominal Catholic, my mom was a Methodist. Uh, you know, dad was born in Mexico. He was an immigrant. Came to the U.S. in the nineteen forties. Mom was born in Brownsville, um, and pretty much had been raised in, in one of the Mexican Methodist churches. Back in the day, when you know they, the, the Mexican Methodist church had its own thing going, obviously for language reasons, but for larger sort of segregationist racial reasons as well. Um, but. But they, you know, they they were picking these tomatoes and and dad, you know, um, after a while, um, you know, converted and decided to to as he as he calls it, give his life over to Jesus Christ and accept him as his Lord and Savior. And that changed the course of history for our family. Um, five years they stay actually stayed in Archibald for five years because my mom was like. No te creo, because if you go back to Brownsville, te vas a ir con esa ralea que te juntas, right, in el barrio. You know, my my dad was from the southmost barrio. He, he, my dad grew up on Coolidge Street, all right? So you get you get you get, you get further into the twentieth century, right? So with, with dad. But he grew up on Coolidge and uh mom was like, you know, hey, you you just became a Christian. I'm not gonna have I'm not gonna go back, you know, to Brownsville. We've got Um, at that time, I mean, I've got five sisters and one brother, we're a big family at that time. There were maybe four siblings and my mom was scared about, you know, going back to Brownsville. So they stayed in Archibald until dad sort of proved that his conversion was real. (laughs) And dad, yeah. I mean, dad told mom, like, look, I'm ready to go start a church in my hometown. Um, and I always thank my dad for that. I mean, as much as I love Northwestern Ohio, I have a lot of primos and primas up there. But I'm grateful we came back home because I was born in Brownsville um, mm. and dad started. Check this out. Dad starts a Mennonite church. He calls it Mennonite. There's no Mennonite, ethnic Mennonite. And I'm, by that, I mean, German, Russian kind of ethnic extraction. There's nobody like that in Brownsville. But dad calls it that because that's what he had affiliated himself with. And mm-hmm. they started in uh, the garage of uh Lago Lalo in El Barrio de la Southmost. Uh, if your listeners, if anybody knows Brownsville, they'll recognize the Valley south the Southmost uh, right away. Uh, some of the best taquerias in Brownsville, no question. Um, and that's where they started. And dad built up uh, a pretty strong following. And Mennonites in the north, somehow these religious networks are real strong. You know about this. They're real yeah. strong. So people found out and Mennonites up in Indiana contacted dad and said, we're interested in partnering and helping you build a church down there. Um, And dad, what dad did with the help of not only my tios, but also his father and other people that had converted to the faith and joined the church um, is they, they, they built a Mexican American working class Mennonite church. And this was, if you know anything about Mennonites, they, are tend to be very sort of pro social justice, mm-hmm. um, pacifist. Um, so I knew growing up I was not going to be in the military. Um, <laughs> you know, very you know, very simple. You know, um, nothing fancy. Keep it simple. And the focus in scriptures for the Mennonites is the Sermon on the Mount, really, mm-hmm. the the uh, the gospel account in Matthew five, six, and seven. Really resonate with Mennonites, and um, even though our church, if you would have walked into our church, you would have probably said, "Oh, this looks like any other Mexican American Pentecostal church," because there's a live, you know, kind of worship atmosphere. There's instruments, uh, which many Mennonites did not use. They pretty much sing in acapella. Right. Um, So I wasn't, so my experience, even though I grew up Mennonite and politically, I was much more progressive because of dad's teachings and what he believed in and his um, compassion and and all of that. I mean, our church uh, was a sanctuary church in the late 80s and in the early 90s. Um, So all of that, you know, kind of filters down into me. I grew up in that context with our church full of refugees and immigrants for uh, a good while. I played basketball with many of them uh, hung out with many of them. Um, didn't understand what was going on, of course, but in retrospect, I do now. Um, but that's, that's sort of the setting that, that I grew up in. And there were, there were always opportunities for us to do service work and to do stuff in the community. We weren't evangelical in the sense that we were knocking on doors, getting people to join the church. People joined Mm -hmm. because there was animal, man, that there was something going on at this place and people wanted to be a part of it. And I was very, I, to be honest, man, I mean, I know the church is a complicated messy space I'm not trying to romanticize it in any way but I was I was just very lucky in that in that regard and and I'm grateful to to my parents for that
2: yeah wow thanks for sharing that yeah <laughs> uh, what <laughs> a, a lot, great right? <laughs> intro no that's I mean, an awesome intro I mean it's uh it kind of crystallizes quite a bit I, I think um you know for you know your scholarship I mean not just the, the first book but you know, connect, the, so connect that background for us into this this next book, right? So yeah. that, that kind of might help us understand a little bit uh, the direction of the first one, but how did you determine to, to write this book and what, what led you to this project?
0: So Apostles of Change comes out really directly out of uh, the research that I was doing for the first book. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really kind of a, a, you know, one of these things where I can't wait to wrap this first book up because I've already got the next book.
2: I'm trying not to feel like that right now, but no, (laughs) those (laughs) inclinations too. (laughs) Right,
0: right, and I know you know all about this, right? Like it's you're you're doing this project, you're finishing it, but you're excited about something else. La otra cosa is this, man. I was also like, um, do I have anything here? Like I knew I had a great story with Apostles of Change, Latino radicals occupying churches. It's you can picture it, you can see it it's dramatic, uh, it's electric, all of that. But, you know, as professional historians, we've we've got a, you know, there's certain commitments to the field, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that that we have to abide by in terms of um, talking to other scholars and kind of an intervention and all that. So that was sort of my biggest challenge after knowing I had a good story, but it comes, it it really sort of just comes out of the fact that um, I knew that these things had happened Whenever I talked to religious studies folks, they were dismissive is a strong word, but they were really like, well, you know, they were, they were brief. What did they really accomplish? Um, Nobody's really written on that because, you know, the archival evidence may not be there. And, you know, I just thought the heck with all that. I love these stories and I'm going to try to see if there's anything. I'm going to try to see if there's a there there. Right. Hey, man. And yeah. yeah. And so for me, you know, it comes out of that commitment to I didn't grow up in any of these urban centers. Uh, I didn't I'm not a big city kid. Um, uh, I I was not trained as an urban historian. I was trained as a Chicano historian, straight up old school with, you know, my advisor, Lupe San Miguel, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, sort of straight up Chicano uh, history. But I've always sort of been interested in let me just say it this way. Religion takes you in so many different directions, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So religion takes you into inter-ethnic coalition building, um, relational notions of race, and uh, you know what Natalia Molina talks about uh, and kind of the groundbreaking work that she's done, her and Luis Alvarez and many others. Uh, and then it also takes you into urban history because much of uh, what at least we didn't know Uh, up until, you know, uh, I'm putting this book together, Apostles of Change, um, much of what we did know was very rural. In other words, um, we knew that Latino and Latina Protestants were side by side with Chavez, um, Mm -hmm. at at least the leadership of these churches, right? And we know that Protestants with the farmworker movement were the first to join Chavez. It wasn't the Catholic church, right? Chavez, right, right. Chavez links up with Presbyterians, first mm-hmm. and foremost, right? Chris Hartenmeyer, um, director, yeah, yeah migrant yeah. ministries, exactly, right? So so that we, you know, I mean, there's been some work on that, right? Uh, there's some folks that have sort of talked about that. Gaston Espinosa has got a great edited collection um, on, on, on sort of those topics that deal with that um and and there's others that deal with farm workers and churches my goal with this book was much more complicated because it took me to urban history and I had to kind of learn that field and sort of you know try to familiarize myself with what was going on there but the one thing I had going for me was that the church was not unfamiliar the religious politics I grew up Uh, surrounded by God, man. So, you know, everywhere we went, you know, dad being a minister, we were always in church services. If we would go to Mexico or Matamoros, it was always to visit churches and we'd go and, and I'd hate it because it was so hot and I was bored and there's nothing for a kid to do, but you know, there was always, uh, you know, taquerias afterwards or dad would always take me to get a haircut in Matamoros, you know, two buck haircut or whatever. And it was great. Um, but you know, that that I that I knew and that I had, and that was what sort of like said, you know, I think I can I think I can do this. And I write that in the preface and just sort of tell people like, um, social location to me matters. Your place as a historian when you're writing about a topic that is not as familiar to you, uh, especially a a place, places that I write about that are not very familiar to me, um, and really sort of trying to be as humble as I can and listen as well as I can to the people that are trying to teach me something about these stories so that when I write it, I'm coming across as somebody that's that's um, given the necessary time and the work um, to, to tell a story in the best way possible.
2: Yeah, I love that because, uh, you know, I mean, as you mentioned, you have this connection, right, in the experience of, you know, religion in, in your background and particularly, right, a um, you know, a, a definite a religion that isn't considered right prototypical right Latino, of course. It's yeah, like right. Catholic, right. So, so you have that connection that pulls you in. But uh, I appreciate how you discussed it. You know, you're still an outsider to this story, right? I mean, as you're saying, you know, these are urban contexts for movements, right? right? For mobilizations. You got Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Houston, right? Um, and we'll talk yeah. about the importance of those places in a bit. And and so even as you said, right? As as a historian, how much even how much you may con- be connected with certain themes within what you're studying. I mean, there's still, uh, you know, you got to build trust with these people, right? I mean, you got to get to know the place. As you said, you got to get to know the literature, right, that this is going into. Um, exactly. It talks a little bit more about that process. Like, so um, you, you somehow, you you got wind of these stories, right? You, you got wind of these occupations. Uh, where did you go next, you know? What did you do next Great. to kind of probe further?
0: No, that's a great question, man, because the next thing for me was, um, you know, there's an emerging literature on Chicago. There has been for a long time. Um, you know, Lilia Fernandez, of course, and and others um, that Gabriela Redondo and others that have done just phenomenal work on the city of Chicago, LA. I mean, come on, right? I mean, there's yeah. so many great books on LA, right? Um, New York City, end of story, man. That's, an, you know what I mean? Like there's there's <laughs> yeah. plenty. Houston is actually one of the more understudied uh, of these uh, of these cities, but I, there's an emerging historiography that's building there. I think more, um, you know, historians, I think at Tawana Steptoe's work on African-Americans there and certainly Brian Benkin and others that have written on, on Houston. And I think there's more great work to come. Right. But so that's where I started. I really like just reaching out to the historians, to the people that knew these spots and that had written about them. I had read their books. Um, and, uh, and then went and, and just sort of asked like, um, you know, where should I start? You know, if I'm doing this project, where, where do I go or where should I start and get help? And, you know, our, our, we're lucky in this, in this field, man, that we have such gracious colleagues and people that are just willing to share their knowledge with you. I mean, you got to do the work yeah, and you're on so your own true. doing the work, but people are like, I'll give you this and check this out and talk to that person. Um, and that's where I started. And I had so many just wonderful experiences along the way. Having Lilia Fernandez give me a tour of Chicago, right? And show me uh, <laughs> nice, these wow. sites. And check this out, man. And this is, it sort of takes me back to the first book. We're driving around in, I think it's in navita man. We're, we're like, Lilia's like, let me go get you some good tacos. You know, we were done kind <laughs> of seeing the city. So we go like, and we're, we passed the taqueria, and she's like, "Oh, let me loop around." So we go into this neighborhood. I'm not kidding. We found the oldest Mennonite church in Chicago, which is Lawndale uh, Mennonite Church, wow. uh, one of the first ones to start there. And I told Lilia, "I said, is that, is that that?" And you know, Lilia just sort of rolled her eyes at me and said, "I guess so. I guess we'll have to stop." And I said, "Yeah, I think we should stop. You know, <laughs> probably check this out." But but you know, doing that and 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 I remember. Um, you know going to DePaul University and because yeah. that's where there's a large collection of Young Lords uh, archival material and looking through those materials and then realizing that in order they had such great photographs and and that, that's what I tried to really do with Apostles of Change is put some great photographs in there and I remember I telling the archivist I said, who do I talk to about permissions for these photographs and the archivist is like well Carlos Flores is the photographer Um, and he comes in every once in a while, but you know, why don't you leave your name and number and we'll give it to him and it'll be up to him to call you and see what happens. And I was like, sure, that might've been 2013, 2014, I put I, right. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, it was probably, and I had gone back many times to DePaul since then. And, um, you know, I, I go back and you know, check in, is my number still there? Yes, you know, I'm sorry he hasn't called, but there's nothing we can do, and, you know, he's very busy and all that. About a year before, I, I'm starting to work on getting the permissions, and I'm, I'm just sort of convincing myself that I'm not going to get these photographs, that, <laughs> that I'm not going to get permission. I'm just sort of like, it, it is what it is, right? And I kid you not, it was a Friday night, we're ready as a family going out to dinner, it's usually the one night a week we go out, pre-pandemic, right? Um, and... You know, I get a phone call and it's an unrecognizable number. And for whatever reason, because I usually don't answer numbers that are not recognizable, yeah. I picked it up <laughs> and it w- and it was Carlos Flores. Wow! And I told Maribel, I told my wife, I said, you know, why don't you drive? I'm gonna just be in the passenger. I this phone call, I can't put it down. Yeah. And Carlos, um, from there, opened the world to me in terms of photographs, and and that's that's the benefit. And then from there, you know talking to other photographers, Jairo Maristani in New York City, Luis Garza in Los Angeles, um, the Houston Metropolitan Research Archives in in downtown Houston. Um, So all of that, I I mean, all that to say that I think you begin in relationships, man. I mean, I think it's really important as historians Mm -hmm. that we we begin in relation um, not only to as we introduce ourselves and sort of cold call some people or email people or whatever about possible oral history interviews, or we make visits to archives. But that we also reach out to our colleagues that are doing amazing work in these fields and really just pick their brain. Um, Because once we do that, there's a sense that you're, you're sort of honoring the work that they've done. And you're not coming in saying, hey, I'm the latest and greatest and I'm going to revolutionize how you think about Chicago or whatever. Like, no, man, like listen to what people have put in painstakingly long hours, right? Long days. Listen to that, read their work, start there, and you'd be surprised at how gracious people can be. And I have benefited tremendously, especially as an outsider from, you know, folks like her, Joanna Fernandez up in New York City with the Young Lords um, you know, people in, in, connecting me with folks in, in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles and and getting me, you know, access to meet people or doing introductions and so forth. So that's really where I started. Um, in Houston, I knew the city a lot more. I had a lot of friends. I went to grad school at the university of Houston Mm -hmm. and I really relied on people. I wanted, I wanted to know who the folks were that were doing kind of the grassroots work on Mayo, the Mexican American youth organization. Um, and talk to them because, you know, as your colleague, uh, Ignacio Garcia, who's done great work on Mayo, uh, you know, certainly going to his work and then looking at some of the newer stuff that's come out uh, as of late on activism in, in Houston. So it's about relationships, man. I think that's where I started. And I've been I've been very lucky. The, the, the body of work that we all complete at the end of the day is touched by so many folks. You know, along the way, and I think that's why the acknowledgements goes on forever.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I agree one hundred percent. Relationships. Uh, it, it goes back to what you said at the beginning, right? That uh, you know, you're finishing Latino Mennonites, and you already got this inkling of this next project, right? And and so many of us feel that way, right? There's there's so many stories to tell, oh, God. Uh, and we God. know they're good. It's like you said, right, in the beginning, and you know, we, we we got our trust, our gut, you know, first of all, to say, you know, kind of, you know, to to hell with the people that say no. <laughs> to yeah, hell with exactly. The people that say like that's that's not you know that's not theoretical enough yet, right, Or right. That's not you're not making a big enough intervention yet. You know, you if you got the inkling of you, I got a good story here, you know, hold on to it and push it and dig. Like you said, right? Uh, look to others. Yes, our field is uh, that's been my experience too. It's it's yeah. incredibly gracious. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime I've asked someone. For help or a question, I mean, it's just they're they're more than willing to give me way more, <laughs> right? Yeah, than I actually need, and I just think it's because we have, we know there's so much story, there's so many stories, there's so much history to tell, and we know we can't right. do it, you know, we, we can't do it by ourselves. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to also with, uh, you know, with the, the people, you know, are. Uh, that that you know teaches these stories also you know the the community members um yeah as you mentioned i was blown away just speaking of photographs how many photographs you got in this book i I mean kudos to ut press for letting you publish so many of these right i'm thinking about like my my book i people keep cautioning me like well well be careful with how many photos and images you think you're gonna get how many photos are in this thing i mean uh
0: there's at least the, there's at least 26, I think, if I remember right. And and I tell you what, man, you know, when I was, because, you, you know, you're constantly negotiating and UT Press came back and said, wait a minute, in your initial proposal, you said 10 photographs. <laughs> <Now you're, laughs> and I said, look, I told, and, you know, the other thing is the University of Texas Press has just been fantastic to work with. Um, Carrie Webb, who was the, the the first editor that I spoke to and had great conversations with, I mean, that's what I have loved about about working with Carrie and working with UT Press is that they will tell you, these are our limitations. This is what we can or can't do. But then they're also willing to say, okay, but pitch it to me. Give me your best case. Like, why should we put all these pictures in here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all I did, to be honest with you, is I said, look, these are the pictures. This is where they're going to go. Just take a look at them. If you don't like mm-hmm. them, you don't like them. And Yeah, yeah, I yeah, said, yeah, yeah, right? But if you like them, because i love them and if you think they're (laughs) great then i I, I guarantee you're going to want to put them in and sure enough in every case carrie and others came back to me and said we want all of them and actually there was there were two there two two photos that i got towards the end and i said i know i'm getting really high up on pictures can we (laughs) pick between one or two and they came back to me and said we can't decide we want both of them so we're just going to put both of them in there and you know Working and having that kind of—that's another sort of component of this process. But um, you know, working with the right press and the right editor always helps in terms of trying to get your vision and you know what you want in this book. Because ultimately, it's your book. And listen, man—I mean, it all comes from lessons learned from the mistakes I made in book one and didn't want to ever repeat again. And thought I'm going to fight for things in book two because in book one I was naive but didn't really know much. I said Mm -hmm. yes to everything. I didn't really fight back or push back, not fight, but I didn't really like, you know. uh, Negotiate, yeah. Negotiate, right. I didn't, I didn't I didn't, I didn't, and so I was like, oh my gosh, okay.
2: But well, we just, um, you know, we want that book published, right? Yeah, <laughs> Careers yeah. on the line.
0: I got two babies at home. You know, I'm yeah. like, we got, I got to do something <laughs> here, man. Like, cause look, they, I, you, I'll, I'll tell you some people know this story. Others don't. The first book was the title was actually quiet riots. I,
2: I've heard this. I, yeah. I yeah. I've heard that the title was not, was an unexpected direction? there's an unexpected because i don't i mean
0: yes i do write about mennonites in the latino church i mean the latinos in the mennonite church that is the the essence but i don't write about all of them i leave a bunch of them out florida you know much of the west coast much of texas you know all of these communities i don't write about everybody i write about social it's a social movement book at yeah. the end of the day and anyway so that's uh yeah so you you sort of learn and then you come back and you're like you know again but again As you mentioned, uh, you know, in terms of trusting your gut, that's the one piece of advice I would give people is go with what's inside of you and what you want and trust that because that's going to lead you in the right direction.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah,
2: yeah. And it's like you said, you know, right? You got to be humble, right? I mean, you got to take mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. direction. You know, you don't come out, you know, uh, you know as a... Uh, you know kind of egotistical and everything but you know, yeah you got to trust knowing when you have something good i mean i'm just again flipping through these photos and i'm just trying to imagine how you have this book without these pictures because it's so much about community it's so yeah. much about you know again power right these organizations right stepping up pushing the church right in in a direction in a direction to serve the people and that's exactly what these photos are doing i mean you know uh, showing the, the the health clinic um, you know, figure 3.3, 3, chapter 3, uh, at, at, uh, you know, People's Church. I mean, you know, all the tests that you described that were done for lead poisoning. I mean, all of these organizations instilled, because they're inspired by right by the Black Panthers, Black Power, you know, breakfast programs. Uh, I can't tell you how how touched, you know, it it just makes you to, like, you're looking at all these pictures and the kids are, they're eating food. Like, I mean, that was, a, that was such a big part right. of what they were trying to do, just serve the community and one of the most basic things was get food in their bellies. And, um, you know, it goes back to that early, earlier point you were making about the different literatures that this book deals with. And, and that one of them is, you know, bringing this story, the social movement story, importance and power of religion, uh, right? Um, you know, but also the urban crisis. I mean, I, when I was yeah. le- reading the, the introduction, you know, you, there's a phrase you had in there that just struck me. And it, it, something to this phrase like that, that churches experience the urban crisis too, and dude, right. it, it blew me away because I read a lot of books on the urban crisis. <laughs> a, you don't get through an American history Ph.D. nowadays, <laughs> particularly studying in Los Angeles or you know any major metropolitan region without learning you know about the urban crisis, right? The the, the rise of the suburbs, etc. You know, the, the movement of capital, people from the city, right? All that stuff. Exactly. Right. But somehow right. that. That message that churches experienced it too, that never clicked. You yeah, know, that that didn't stick out to me in the literature. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. you want to talk about that yeah. a little bit? Um, yeah, you, you know, I mean, it it just I, I think one one part of it is just kind of the, um, and I'll say something just to repeat and to quote the great Vicky Ruiz, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Vicky was in one article, I can't remember, maybe the late 80s, early 90s, where she was writing about religious archives, you've probably read this article. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have the title off the top of my head, but she writes something about to the effect that look, religious archives are not dead ends. They are gold mines. Um, And she was sort of pushing scholars in that that moment to like, you've got to go look at these archives, because you're going to find things that you would have ultimately missed at the end of the day and for me when I started doing this work I knew right away I had something I had a jump on others because the the work that I had read um people had missed this or the church kind of crisis that that church buildings and what churches were dealing with not only integration but whether or not they should stay in the inner city in Houston for example or in Lincoln Park but um but also kind of what the, the, the social movement of the day was sort of pushing them on um, yeah, black theology, black liberation, theology, all of these points. And I, I knew I had to jump on that because of, of my familiarity with religious archives and what I would potentially find, um, you know, in these spaces uh, that would tell me that sort of side of, of the story. And so that, that for me was very clear from the beginning. I wanted to learn what it is that folks were um, uh, experiencing, what the kinds of decisions that churches had to make. Um, and it really sort of opened the door to see a, just a completely different side to um, the Chicano movement in Houston. I mean, here you have these radicals that are talking to these Presbyterian ministers like it ain't no thing, you know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, Roberto Trevino, right? Who says that this is the city where Selma meets Satslan. Um, and it's fitting that Chicanos are talking to these Southern Presbyterians, right. In the way that they are, I think it's, it's a fitting of, uh, uh, of that context. Um, but, but yes, I mean, all of these spaces were in a crisis of their own in terms of whether they were going to leave the, the city, whether they were going to move to the suburbs. Uh, and for many, it was a no brainer. They were, they were up and gone. No question. And then what they did with the buildings, I mean, that's sort of what what I deal with in in terms of what happens in Houston. But that becomes a centerpiece uh, in much of these stories.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What to do with the buildings. I I mean, the key question, right? what to do about, you know, the. The landscape that's being abandoned exactly, you know, that's right? A, the disinvestment. Um, let's talk about occupation, you know. And so, what's the role of occupation? I mean, this book focuses essentially, which blows <laughs> me away, like you basically write a book about one year. <laughs> that's <laughs> <You> know, true, <laughs> and, and these and the occupations probably happen within like six months of each other, if that, like, like bam, 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 right? Um, so let's talk about that, you know, the 1969 and the role of occupation, you know, and, and taking over these churches. You know, um, that about?
0: Yeah, I, I think, I think part of it. And look, I had grand plans at the beginning. Okay, for me, <laughs> it, 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 you know, initially the believe it or not, initially the idea was a narrative arc from occupation to sanctuary was what yeah, I was yeah, thinking. Yeah. That I wanted to write a book about the seventies, and I was going to tell these occupation stories and then end with.
2: Yeah, that would be like on no. chapter one,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> right. you can Ch-
2: do the Ch- occupations Ch- stuff and then you're going to go. Right. Up. And then I'm going to
0: go. <laughs> go up. Everybody that I talked to was just not very interested in that. Like everybody that I would, you know, kind of pick their brain a little bit and what do you think about this? And everybody was like, that's a lot, man. You know, people were like, that's a whole lot. You should just do the occupations. And, you know, I was like, you're, you're probably right. Um, but I think that was my concern. It's, a, it's essentially a micro history. It's one year uh, that all of this is happening in. I don't think I realized it then, but certainly now living through the pandemic, I, know, I think you've probably seen the memes or the jokes where people <laughs> are like, are you a historian of the first half of 2020 or the second <laughs> half of 2020, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> you know,
0: like right. I, I, think, I think it's good to slow the 1960s down a bit. Like just slow, because people give a lot of credit to these meta events. And in religious history, there are no bigger events than Vatican II and the emergence of liberation theology. Um, And a lot of people, a lot of historians are quick to assign those sort of big meta events as the kind of justifications and reasons for uh, the kinds of transformations that you begin to see, especially in Latino churches, the Catholic church in particular, the rise of Padres, the, the Chicano priest movement, or the rise of Las Hermanas, the, the Latina nuns that, that organized uh, in the 1970s, and that were very active in, in, in the Chicano movement, uh, and Las Hermanas even bigger, uh, you know, into uh, Latina uh, feminisms and so forth. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I quickly found is that when these occupations are taking root, San Antonio is much more progressive theologically in terms of its Catholic faith than Los Angeles is. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, um, San Antonio is developing the Mexican-American Cultural Center. Padres is emerging, starting to sort of come together. It hadn't fully come together yet, but it's starting to come together in late 68, and it really comes to fruition in 69. But if you were in Los Angeles, Cardinal McIntyre shut anybody down talking about liberation theology.
2: Yeah, um, and people forget, you know, Southern California is the, the one of the key center points of the rise of the new right, you know? I mean, it's, right, I mean, it's, it's it, it yeah. just fits, you know, that kind of very conservative theological thinking within the Catholic Church fits with, you know, the very conservative politics, you know, uh, of Southern right. California during the era. Right, and yeah. I don't, so I didn't know
0: that. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> I, like, I didn't know that. And so I was like, what? What's going on here? I saw LA as progressive. And I'm thinking San Antonio's behind. And it's <laughs> it's, it's the reverse. There are LA yeah. activists coming to San Antonio to get inspired by um, the COPS program, the Citizens on Patrol, something. I don't know the acronym in general, but it's a Catholic group that was involved in kind of neighborhood politics. They come and they take it back and they start the United Neighborhood Organization, UNO, in LA in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. That idea is originating in San Antonio. Anyway, mm-hmm. I say all that because When Catholicos does what they do when they disrupt Christmas Eve mass in December of 1969 uh, in downtown uh, LA at St. Basil's Catholic Church, um, we're already, what, four years into the boycott, right? Farm worker from 65 to 69, if you think about it, uh, Mm -hmm. and go that strict. We are um, at least four or five years removed from what Vatican II had started to implement and liberation theology, in terms of the, the the Latin American bishops that had met in Medellín, Colombia in 68, it's only a year, we're only a year removed from that. In other words, liberation theology is still a distant idea. Yes, it's emerging and it's coming, but um, it's the new sort of form. And I think what happens is as it's being developed in the academic halls of these Latin American bishops, um, you know, I'm thinking in particular Gustavo Gutierrez, um that as that's happening you have these progressive folks uh Blaise Bonpain uh, Mark Day others that um, that join in on catholicos and liberation theology i think is being written as catholicos are disrupting that mass like in other words there's sort of this grassroots movement that's really starting to fuel what's going to be coming in the 70s um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and there's the occupation uh, serves as kind of the this sort of tipping point, really. If you think kind of in Malcolm Gladwell language, uh, I don't listen to Malcolm Gladwell very much, but tipping point <laughs> is, you know, helpful in sort of thinking about these occupations were kind of the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Basically, it's what took things to the next level because there had already been a lot of religious involvement. It's just that. People in religious circles, especially those dealing with the urban crisis and dealing with issues of race, um, Latinos were never a part of that conversation. It's 1969 or 1970 when I'm writing here, and Latinos are still invisible, right? Mm-hmm. Folks don't know who they are. Who are these Spanish speakers? In Chicago, they call them, you know, they sound like far off thunder is what one Presbyterian minister said. Um, and these occupations changed the game for the church because what radicals do is they make it easier for moderates mm-hmm. radicals pave the way and make it easier for those clergy inside of the church to say you want to deal with us we'll actually listen to you or do you want to get occupied again by those guys you right, know right. um and and that changes Just like i'm okay right
2: i'm ML- okay exactly.
0: Right? <laughs> exactly right exactly right <laughs> exactly Yep. Yep. And I, no, I think, Which one do you want to, you know? right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, <laughs> that's what they, that's where they were coming from. And, you know, you had to, I mean, listen, man, one of the great things that I found was the archives of voices of Latino Protestant clergy. That for me was very, very important uh, mm-hmm. because oftentimes, um, you know, their, their voices are not included in these stories. And so to find them in Chicago and in Houston and different places that I found them in, um, and then to also be kind of like a little jealous of the young lords, right? Like, yeah. wait a minute, we've been advocating for this stuff for years. Yeah,
2: right, right, <laughs> exactly.
0: You, you haven't listened to us. And now these, you know, they call them crazies. These yeah. uncles, you know, these young people, they're they're fooling you. They're tricking you and you're giving, you're not only giving them, you know, I don't know, a thousand bucks, you're giving them $25,000 for a health clinic. You're you're giving them $600,000 for an architectural design plan for mixed income housing in Lincoln Park. Están locos, okay, (laughs) like what are you doing? (laughs) Right. That was amazing to find and and really sort of solidified for me what it meant for them to be ignored for as long as they had been.
2: Yeah, you did a great job. I think helping, you know, me as a reader understand that conflict, right, the, again, the conflict between the outsiders and the insiders, as you explained, right, yeah, all right, these, these right. radicals, you know, even even though they may have, like in, in LA, they have the name Catholicos, right, they're right. not church insiders, these aren't priests <laughs> rising up, no. these are young activists, right? right, and and like I said, revolutionaries, radicals, and yeah. they're taking, yeah. right, very militant revolutionary steps, you know, seizing the property of these chapels and just saying, well, and, and they all tried, right? They tried to negotiate in the beginning. Let's, let's say they that, did. right? That's let's, us admit that, right? That they they tried the, the so-called right way, and but they weren't going to wait forever, right? They weren't like again the religious insiders, the you know the, the priests or, or you know maybe the sisters, etc. You know that that could wait. You know they they wanted to capitalize on the now, right? Uh, claim the space, take it, implement it to force it to serve the community, right? But I totally get it. I mean, I I totally. Yeah. Can understand that frustration of um, yeah of the, you know those inside the church that have been trying so hard working so hard to reform it and then yeah all of a sudden after a few days here's forty grand you know?
0: <laughs> exactly no after right after five days in Chicago we're ready to hand it over you know and it's right. like wow that that was quick you know and I, I mean all all of that I think just sort of points to the fact that in the immediate aftermath right. Um, in Los Angeles, Cardinal McIntyre retires. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and listen, in the book, I make it very clear. I give credit to Catholicos mm-hmm. for that, the disruption. I know there'll be Catholic theologians, Catholic studies folks that'll say, wait a minute, you know, Cardinals don't just retire in 20 days from one event. You know, there were other things, there were other factors, maybe. I just think it's really interesting That this man that was fighting so hard to keep Catholicos out, that was fighting to the end in December of 69, um, had been had already refused retirement before in that year, when the church Mm -hmm. had offered it to him, had refused it, um, decides to retire and says, I'm not fit for the spirit of these days. I'm paraphrasing there, but essentially what he said. Exactly. And and I think that's quite significant. I should, and I will highlight the fact that as that's happening, the Catholic Church is having 21 members of Católicos arrested, Mm -hmm. and what you don't see as people celebrate the emergence of the Chicano priest movement, padres, or as they celebrate the kind of more radical kind of left-leaning turn of the Catholic Church in the 1970s. What you forget is that that's happening on the backs of Catholicos. That's Mm -hmm. happening on the backs of Catholicos por la raza because they are being prosecuted by the Catholic Church. They were the only religious entity that sent these kids to trial, prosecuted them, and some, um, you know, um, spent time in jail or paid fines, right? No other religious entity did that. And when you think about the fact that quote unquote, the Catholic Church is our home as Latinos, like that's the cultural kind of space, to have that institution be the one that's gonna take you to court, prosecute you and send you to jail, sends a pretty strong message if you ask me.
2: Yeah, and that struck me you know, in the book and as you just bring it back up again, uh, again, that, <laughs> like you said, the supposed the spiritual home for Latinos exactly. uh, was the one that had the hardest response and, and didn't relent. I mean, they convicted these kids. Uh, Um, The Presbyterians didn't do it. The Methodists didn't do it. (laughs) Nope. And the church brought the weight of its power, you know, right on. They didn't give in. Um, Yeah, man, it's striking. I I wonder how much of that, again, the narrative of, right, the Catholic church being the, the, the so-called spiritual home for Latinos, right, is, I mean, it's obviously a long history of, of conquest. There's, I mean, I, I love, uh, again, all. I mean, I, I myself wasn't raised uh, Catholic. Uh, my parents changed religions when I was young. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there is something to it. There is something to the symbolism, particularly of, you know, La Virgen. I mean, it's, yeah. it's always been, particularly La Virgen de Guadalupe, right? It's always been drawn to me. I just I love the symbol of, you know, indigenous uh you know mm-hmm. people forcing right the catholic church yeah. a powerful institution in the world to change right at that time right right uh but at the same time, yeah it's just it, it so i guess i'm kind of rambling here but i'm thinking of like, a lot of this is symbolic i think of right the the incorporation of La Vergen, uh, mm-hmm. going up the right uh, with the farm worker movement and as we already mentioned and discussed it was really again it was uh, as protestants that yeah, were much more opening and helpful the catholic church in the central valley was you know more concerned with all of its you know uh, white ethnic European, uh, you know, donors, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, patrons rather than the Mexicanos, right? Right. Um, which right. is what made it hesitant, you know, very hesitant to support the farm worker movement. I mean, it's, it's uh, churches like, uh, people like Father Luis Olivares in Los Angeles
0: that exactly
2: creates uh, this bond with Cesar, who Cesar even has this uh, has this impact on him that converts him to realize, right, that he needs to serve the people too, you know. I don't exactly. know, it's kind of like rambling on this, but it's just- uh, no, it's- I don't know, your thoughts on that? I mean, again, that kind of just this, this it, it being the so-called spiritual homeboy, as you mentioned earlier, it's just complicated, right? <laughs> A very yeah, it's, complicated it's, relationship. It's, it's, um, it's messy,
0: man. And I think, you know, the, the other sort of side to that, um, you know, colonialism, you know, sort of talking about that legacy is that I, you know, in writing this book, I didn't I didn't want to come across, and I don't want to come across as, you know somebody that that is uh, you know chicano historian you know that that writes on religion i don't want to come across as sort of like hey you know uh, i'm romanticizing religious institutions or mm-hmm. assuming that there are these kind of progressive uh institutions they they absolutely are not and and i think it's more of a miracle <laughs> when i think about the way in which these grassroots activists were able to move the church in the way that they did like that Mm -hmm. for me is phenomenal. And there's an abundance of literature already out there on people trying to understand the moral majority or the rise of conservative Christianity or conservative religion, um, in, in America. I, you know, and I'm like, I, I, I get it. And I think that's important work. People should keep doing it. No question. But I think we need more folks to also kind of figure out why it is that uh, or how it is, uh, that in some cases the church can work for pretty substantial progressive change. Um, that, that to me is something we need to investigate. We need to learn, we need to know more about because these, these young activists sort of teach us, um, you know, those, those lessons of what is indeed, um, you know, possible. It's not, it, it it didn't, I mean, I think maybe I was a little bit surprised because I I didn't realize that the church had come down so hard on them, Mm -hmm. uh, on Catholicos, and especially in relation to uh, these heavily white denominations, um, Presbyterian and Methodist. Uh, But I, you know, so for me it became one of these things where I wanted to make sure that when we deal with religion, that we look at the colonialism part, but then also realize that, um, um, not just Catholics, but certainly Protestants as well, these sexual abuse scandals that have come out um, in recent years, make just everything a lot more messy, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, how we deal and how we address and talk about, you know, progressive reform and so forth, with folks that you are writing about that might have been predators at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And that's scary, right? And that's sort of scary. But I think if there, there's no way, sometimes you don't know, or sometimes you do. But I just think those of us that do that kind of religious history and are writing about these movements, I think just have to be really cognizant, um, you know, of that. And I hope I haven't dropped the ball in this book. I mean, I, I did my due diligence, but it's 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 something you've got to just really treat as kind of what we as academics love to say, right? That it's complicated, um, <laughs> and 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 in this case, it just happens to really be that. Um, so it, 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 there's no sort of easy way to sort of think about it because, um, you know, you have to understand the fact that, um, what Methodists and Protestants or Methodists and Presbyterians and how they handled these occupations is actually quite, um, admirable, uh, as compared to what the Catholic church and what Cardinal McIntyre, which they should just be completely ashamed of in terms of how they dealt with those kids, with those young folks. Um, they were demonized in the press. Uh, In the L.A. Times, uh, Alicia Escalante, Rosie Bermudez, uh, who's writing a biography on her. Um, You know, Alicia Escalante was demonized uh, in the L.A. Times and in the press there. Um, And and all of them were to a large degree. And it's uh, Ricardo Cruz, who started Católicos, had a hard time, um, you know, getting a law license to practice in the state of California. They've always brought up his activism and his history of activism. When if you look at Ricardo Cruz. He starts as a devout Catholic and he puts Catholicos in the name because mm-hmm. he wants like the Southern leadership or the Southern Christian Leadership Council, like MLK putting Christian in that name. He wants Catholics and the Catholic church to know that they were not anti-Catholic and they certainly got treated as such. And it's really a shame.
2: Yeah, that got me thinking it back to like the urban crisis narrative um, uh, and you know, like the whole, this whole project, right, of urban redevelopment and gentrification yeah. today is like it too. Whereas, what I'm referring to here is the obsession of cities, right, um, to try to get back what they lost, and they don't realize what they freaking have, you know. Right. They don't realize the people that are there. I'm thinking of Andy's, uh, uh, you know, Senador book, right, Barrio America, right, how Latinos yes. saved. Uh-huh the american city right and all these cities right you have latinos moving in they're starting businesses they're raising property values they're renting the homes they're doing everything you want people to do and these damn rede- redevelopment agencies just can't break out of the confines of thinking we need to get these white middle class people back and i'm joining the right. corner here the, the, the church the catholic church is doing the same dang thing right and i'm, I'm right. not trying to bag on the catholic church at all it's just you know it's crystallizing for me like how much and you know, this these literatures are intersecting. You know, how important again the pressure that the, the urban crisis put on these churches, as you mentioned, we mentioned earlier, it's, it's making that choice. You know, do we flee to the suburbs, right? Do we go and try to you know attract the parishioners that we've lost, and and that's a lot of the discussion, and that that prevented them, you know, from seeing what they had right? What was right there in the community, the people that they should have been serving, the people exactly. that were willing, really looking to be served, that were looking to fill the pews, right? Looking for the guidance, both spiritual, temporal, etc. You know, um, and so just, it's, I mean, it's, it's just a great job. It's a comment there to just, that really does crystallize, right? The, the role that the churches are, are put during, you know, put into and experiencing during this moment.
0: It's a, it's a missed opportunity for them without question. It's a missed opportunity for them without it, without a doubt. Yeah.
2: You know, it's got me thinking. Uh, we're, we don't have too much time left, but I want to want to talk again. Uh, what I was also wondering about is, you know, this book and, and maybe even Latino Mennonites, right? Um, do these do these would these books get published 15 or 20 years ago? You know, mm-hmm. what I'm referring to here is is uh, you know there is a a budding scholarship, right? Particularly in uh, Latinx studies, Latinx history, that's particularly taking on more, right? The role of Christianity broadly. Uh, right, in, um, you know, Chicano Latino history. Um, and just wanted to get your thoughts on that, kind of looking at where the, the field itself is going. Like, what is it, uh, do you think that is, has that is opened and continues to open this field to where we're seeing more and more books that are, you know, delving deeper, right, doing little micro histories, right, of the, the power of, you know, the religious experience in Latino communities, right, and uh, you know, and history, you in, in, in uh, know, in the United States.
0: No, th- that's a great question, and I really appreciate it too because it's something that that I have seen just in my time. You know, I entered um, a master's program in South Texas in 2001, um, and and then went on the PhD work and finished in 09. And in that time, what got me um, to uh, you know, wanting to sort of work in religion and, and religion and politics in particular, was reading, you know, for example, Gaston Espinosa's dissertation. Uh, he was at a UC Santa Barbara, he studied under Mario Garcia, and he wrote a great dissertation on on Pentecostals uh, in the United States. And it's now become a a, a great, a great book. Um, but there weren't many folks. And, um, you know, especially in our field. I mean, I was very intent when I got to the University of Houston, and telling Lupe, like, I'm doing religion and politics. And I know you're an educational historian, but I need to be trained in Chicano history. And you're the guy to do it. Um, Because I had some of the background in terms of the religious studies, literature, and and all of that. Um, But you could count on, you know, one hand in terms of the folks that were doing the religious history, Arlene M. Sanchez-Walsh had published her book, Latino Pentecostal identity. Um, Gaston Espinosa's dissertation and several articles were out there. Dan Ramirez had a couple of great articles out. Uh, Roberto Trevino, who's become just um just a god was a godsend for me and has become a great mentor. We still communicate even though he's he's retired now. Um, he's the author of the Church in the Barrio and uh, story on Ethno Catholicism in Houston. So, and it's a Medina, right? And Richard Martinez, I think, writing about Padres and Las Hermanas. And so there's a small cluster of folks. And I was really like, when I'm at, at the University of Houston and my peers were very supportive, everybody loved what I was doing. Everybody was very kind. Um, but when they would invite me to a panel or something, they'd be like, well, we're not really doing religion, but don't you write about the movement? I'm like, yeah, well, we could throw you in there, vente. And, and it was like, well, what's the title of the panel? Well, I don't know because you're in it now. And so it kind of messes things up. But I was always like, it would be like the Chicano movement, you know, politics, race, culture, and beyond. I was always the and beyond part, right? Like that was, okay, Fanipa's on this panel. He's going to be and beyond because nobody knows what the hell he's talking about. He's talking about these Mennonites or religion. And it's like, okay, dude, you know, great. But that didn't really matter. so it was hard. I mean, I'm not going to say it was easy. It was very, very difficult. I think if I were to sort of, pin, it's a as you noted, it's very different now. Um, you can go, I have now been at the AHA and other major conferences with entire panels of folks, young and up and coming scholars that are doing work on religion and politics that I'm just trying to be like, can I hang out with y'all? Can I roll? Can I chill? Like you guys are really cool. It's like, yeah, I wish y'all would have been around when I was coming up, but you know, I'm thinking about Maggie Elmore and yeah, Sergio Gonzalez yeah. and, uh, you know, Eladio Boadilla, who's at the University of Kentucky. You know, others that I've sort of come in contact with that are doing, in one way or another, engage um, you know, re- religion in some way. And so, um, I, I you know, I think one part of it is, well, two things that I'll say. The first thing is that just like the immigrant rights movement that has surged, and especially in the years after, 2006 with those big marches across the country, Mm -hmm. Um, just like that has sort of motivated and shifted our field to look at immigration history and all the great books that are coming out on immigration history. The other thing that's come out of that is the kind of heavy religious overtones of the immigrant rights movement, um, and the kind of reemergence of the sanctuary movement as of late, and I think of Mm -hmm. Sister uh, uh, Nancy Pimentel in, in South Texas, and other, uh, the, the Reverend William Barber, uh, and other folks across the country that are uh, doing amazing work. I, I, I wanna say, I wanna believe that part of that is really sort of pushing us as scholars, at least some of us in, our, in the sector and, and a lot of new up and coming folks to engage religion in a way that we would have not, as you mentioned, 10 or 15, 20, whatever years ago, uh, or at least that wouldn't have maybe gotten as much attention. Um, and I think the other is that as the Latino population grows and as people are more and more coming to a realization that we are not a monolith, that we are a heterogeneous group as the most recent election showed, um, that in order to really sort of get us and understand us, you've got to go, you've got to kind of take a regional or even a local approach. Um, uh, I think that sort of reminded you know us about um, you know, a, a, as George Sanchez talks about with his new work on Boyle Heights, right? The, the, and I'll paraphrase, sort of the big things of history happen in small places, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's really where if you want to get at the heart of the Latino experience in the United States, you've got to go um, to the city or to the neighborhood or to the rural part. And if you look at, if you, you, you know this historiography very well. You look at the beginning, Al Camarillo, Chicanos and a Change in a changing society is talking about barrioization. Mm-hmm. Virginia Sanchez Virginia Sanchez Corro is talking about East Harlem and Puerto Rican migration to New York City um, and the boroughs there. Um, that has always mattered to us, and I think I think kind of having that sort of micro history approach has has helped kind of crystallize or help better kind of explain um, you know these things. That's not to say that the kind of big meta history doesn't work. I think it definitely does. Um, and, and I think there's folks that do, do it very well. Laura, Laura Gomez in particular yeah, does it very yeah. well. Lorena Oropesa in particular mm-hmm. does it very well, you know? Um, but, but I think there's something to also be said about these local movements that happen in the barrios and that tell us a big story about displacement, about urban history and about politics in the United States.
2: I want to, uh, well, first of all, I don't want this conversation to end, but um, This is fun, man. This yeah, is so this much is, fun. <laughs> this is a blast. If I can sneak in one more question, and it goes sure. back to the title of the book, which is, you know, just grab me, right? Apostles. Apostles of change. You know, that speaks to, you know, something prophetic, right? Something visionary. Can you kind of give us a, a your closing thought on what was so prophetic and visionary, about what these young radicals did by taking over these churches, because they were all very short movements, right? Uh, they, they, they lasted a matter of days. Many of these organizations, you know, transitioned. Um, you know, and these activists never, you know, kind of ended their activism. But, but uh, you know, these organizations, you know, uh, some of them didn't stick around, right? Um, yeah. So, but but what was that? What was prophetic? You know, and so visionary about what they did.
0: So I'll, I'll give you, and, and, and certainly, hopefully, your readers will go out and get the book and, and read it. But I'll give you just two examples of, of, um, of why I believe and, and how prophetic uh, what they were doing, um, you know how, how it came across and so forth. The first thing is to say that the title comes from a Houston Post article that um, uh, was written in 1973, three years after Mayo occupied the Juan Marcos Presbyterian Church. Um, And it was an article calling the new reverend that had come in to take over the church, Reverend Jose Burgos, um, uh, called him an apostle of change. And uh, when I started, you know, I came across this article and I started reading it, I learned that Jose Burgos was also a Presbyterian minister in Chicago and had been involved in the occupation or had at least in the negotiations to get the young lords out of McCormick Seminary. Uh, At that time in 69, in 73, he's transferred or moves his family, makes his decision to come to to the church. And three years after Mayo has left, he credits Mayo and says, we have a lot to owe to the to what Mayo did at this church because it fundamentally reoriented our mission as a church and got Mm -hmm. us thinking about social services and what we offer our community more. That stuck with me. I think it's quite profound. When three years later, a group of ragtag, unorganized—you know—you um, know—Greg Salasad and some of the—you know—one of the Mayo leaders and some of the oral histories that he's done. Just he, he talks about it in a very vivid language that I won't use here, but <laughs> you know that a group like that could make such a significant change that the new pastor that's coming in is saying. We are who we are as a church today because of what those kids did. I think that's significant. I think that matters a great deal. Um, And the other other, uh, story is, uh, and by the way, Juan Marcos is still a church. It's still open. It's still doing its thing. It's got all of these ministries to the community. And it's now, the neighborhood is now gentrifying and changing once again. Mm -hmm. We, it's, Time will tell in terms of what's going to happen now with this congregation as it goes through yet another iteration of neighborhood transition. Mm The other the other is the story out of First Spanish United Methodist uh, Church. And here's another historic, the People's Church. Here's another historic church in East Harlem, corner of 111th and Lexington uh, Avenue, that is still very involved, um, doing a lot of mutual aid work now in the pandemic. Uh, you can follow them on Facebook, and the, the pictures are remarkable. Still very committed to, to the mission of the Young Lords, but still a very evangelical congregation, still conservative, still very you know traditional. Um, that's still part of uh, their mission, just like Juan Marcos is. But when, when I was doing oral histories and meeting different people, one of the most profound experiences for me was meeting Felipe Luciano, who was a chairman of the Young Lords in New York City, um, he was an Af- uh, he is an Afro Puerto Rican involved in the Black Arts Movement. Grew up Pentecostal. Should have probably been a preacher. Very articulate um, and a poet, an activist, radical, all of that. We're meeting um, at La Fonda Boricua, all right, in East Harlem, and I'm there for an oral history interview with him, and we're. Uh, and I put this in the book too, we're, 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 we're in the restaurant and I'm thinking the music is way too loud here. Right. And the only reason I'm thinking that is because I'm an oral historian and I got a record. Right, yeah. Exactly. I, you, you start to become a real <laughs> nerd, right? And you're like, Oh my gosh. You know, and you're like, how, how inappropriate of me would it be to say, could we turn down the music yeah. a little bit? Like I was not going I to do that. Right. So I was like, whatever, I'll suck it up. And, and it is, it is what it is. But we're, we're meeting and we're talking we ate, we met for like three hours, man. I mean, it was a long, it was a long time, but it was such a beautiful conversation. And Felipe Luciano, you know, just shared with me over and over in that interview, how much that experience meant to the young lords in terms of solidifying them as an organization during their very, basically the first few months of their organization. Mm -hmm. The garbage offensive got the attention of the city. The church occupation captured the hearts of the city. Right. So if the media knew who they were by the time they get to the church, they had won their hearts by the time they were occupying this church. And even the skeptics, when they would walk in and hear the music, the speeches that were playing on the Makamek speeches that were playing, the, the the piles of clothes that they were giving away to folks, uh, coats and other things to keep folks warm, the breakfast program. Felipe looks at me at the end and we're both. I mean, he's my Tokayo, right? We have the same name, right? So Felipe, we're going back and forth. And three hours in, man, loaded on, on, you know, uh, juices and food and everything we had been dessert, everything we had been eating. And we're getting emotional at this point, because the way that he's talking about the church in a very sort of spiritual and emotional way, he looks at me straight in the eye and he says, we were in that church during that time. We were free and we were about as free as you can get. Um, and it gives me chills even just thinking about it right now in the way that he looked at me and told me that. Um, it's 1969, man. There are very few spaces in America where Latinos feel free or feel at home. Um, they're being displaced. They're being pushed around. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody gets us. Nobody understands who we are. And here they are in this one building, reclaiming it, taking it for themselves and feeling free. And that for me, was quite prophetic in hearing him say that, and to think about it in that way, um, and uh, and yeah, so that 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 that's what I'll say about that. But it was just profound, man. I mean, in that way, to think about these short movements that ended quickly, but yet left, I think, a, a pretty enormous um, legacy that that hopefully no one forgets.
2: I'm, uh, as you're sharing that, um, I'm looking at a note I have on my computer that I use for inspiration. I have a couple of them, but one of them is from uh, the late Chicano historian, pioneering historian, John Gomez Quinones, And he says, write history that matters. And um, Mm. I just want to give you kudos, man. You did it. Um, It's a phenomenal story. Uh, History, the power of it can be felt in just those last couple uh, experiences that you shared. So thank you. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on here. Uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative and very grateful. Thank you.